We welcome you to worship this Palm Sunday. Uh, it is a glorious day uh, as we remember uh, what our Lord has done for us to secure our salvation. Uh, I want to invite you to take your Bible uh, wherever you are and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of uh, Matthew chapter 27 in the New Testament. Uh, one announcement uh, is there will be a Good Friday service uh, uh, on Friday at 7 o'clock of this week. Uh, we'll have some worship music uh, that is appropriate for the day. Uh, we will have a, a brief message from the Word of God, uh, which will be uh, challenging, I'm sure, uh, as the Word of God always is, and uh, comforting. Uh, and we will also observe communion again, and so we would encourage you uh, to be prepared for that. Uh, if you are homebound, uh, and are not able to get elements for some reason, um, if you would let the church know and we will see what we can do uh, in making sure you have uh, elements uh, on hand for Good Friday as we worship the Lord and remember his sacrifice for us. Uh, let's go to God in prayer as we open the scriptures. Uh, Lord, uh, it's always enjoyable, uh, like eating a great meal to, when we sit down and open the, the word of God. Uh, feeds the soul, feeds the mind, feeds the heart. We thank you for just the food that it is. Uh, we uh, avail ourselves of your teaching today. Uh, give us what we need to hear, and uh, we pray that we might be challenged uh, to, to take what we hear about the greatness of the cross uh, and to share the glory of the cross with those about us, especially at this difficult time when so many in our nation uh, need to turn to you and humble themselves. Might we be the instruments of the gospel? And for those who, who listen, who, who are watching the message, uh, they may not have ever even come into a, a church service before. Uh, we just pray that you would use the words that will be spoken today uh, in their life in a profound way to, to cause them to see their need of the Savior in their life. And we will pray for their salvation in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, irony is, is something that I look at all the time, uh, and I find it interesting because it pops up all over the place. Uh, it seems like you can't go out through a given day in the D.C. area and not hear and see ironic things. Um, politicians, as we know, uh, uh, use irony, whether they know it or not. Most of the time, I don't think they know they're using it. Uh, but they employ irony uh, in ways that are interesting. Uh, for instance, on, on one hand, uh, some politicians will say that they support the Constitution wholeheartedly. And then on the other hand, uh, they will say and do things that are completely contrary to the Constitution uh, and show that they uh, are not uh, supportive of it uh, because of a variety of reasons. Uh, scientists also uh, say ironic things. They use irony. Uh, Sir Francis uh, Crick, uh, who is no, uh, by no means a believer uh, at all, uh, he has advanced degrees in molecular biology, biophysics, neurological science, a very educated man. Uh, does not believe in God, uh, but as he considered uh, highly specified complex uh, creation uh, items in, in the world, in the cosmos, he said this, quote, the origin of life seems almost to be a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going, unquote. I find that interesting. I kind of smiled when I read that in a science book I was reading a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I just underlined in my book, well, life is a miracle. How ironic that a person who doesn't believe in God uh, would make a statement like that. It's, it's so amazing that that came from his mouth. And it is true when you look at the complexity of the cosmos, the specified complexity for things to operate, just the uh, thousands of proteins uh, needed, which are the building block of life to make life happen, uh, statisticians uh, tell us uh, the odds of that happening by itself are 1 in 10 to the 40,000th power or 
that's not going to ever happen. So it's ironic that an educated man like Crick would make a statement like that. Uh, irony uh, is also uh, a rhetorical device that is used to teach and to educate. Uh, when I was in grad school at Dallas Seminary uh, from 81 to 85, uh, we had to study figures of speech. Uh, and the greatest book for figures of speech in the Bible uh, was written in the late 1800s by a nam- man named E.W. Bollinger. Uh, he wrote a, a book, and it's no easy read, called Figures of Speech uh, Used in the Bible. Uh, mine is a well-worn copy because I've used it for many, many years. Uh, this is what he says about irony as a rhetorical advice. He says, the figure of irony is so-called when the speaker intends to convey a sense contrary to the strict signification of the words employed, not with the intention of concealing the real meaning, here's the key part, but for the purpose of adding greater force to it. Why in the world would uh, biblical authors use irony by way of inspiration? Well, Bullinger tells you they use irony to make a powerful statement. Uh, Of the gospel writers, uh, Matthew is uh, author of the first gospel. He uh, clearly understood the power of irony and how to use it uh, to communicate the greatness and the power of the work of Christ in the gospel. In fact, you can't read uh, his analysis of the the Passover Passion Week and not see the irony uh, of the moment displayed uh, for all to understand and learn from. For instance, uh, on that very first uh, Palm Sunday, uh, many ironies present themselves. Uh, three in particular. Number one, Jesus rode into town, as we all know, on a donkey, uh, as opposed to a conquering war horse, is what you see him riding in Revelation 19. Uh, the people thought he should have been on a war horse, but, but he was on a donkey. This is completely ironic. Um, number two, the people threw palm branches down in front of him, and by so doing that, they were saying that they wanted to observe the seventh of seven feasts of Israel, the Feast of Tabernacles, because Zechariah 14 had prophesied that when the Messiah comes, that the world will observe the Feast of Tabernacles, which is denoted by uh, palm branches. What they did was they skipped the other six feasts of Israel and went straight for the last one. But Jesus uh, is going to ironically show them that they can't get to feast number seven until they first observe feast one through six, like Passover. Jesus had to be the Passover lamb. Unleavened bread, that feast. He had to be the, the Messiah with no sin. The feast of first fruits, that he would be the first to rise again and that many more would follow after him. The feast of Pentecost, when the spirit is poured out upon the church. The feast of weeks, the feast of trumpets, the feast of the day of atonement. And then finally, the Feast of Tabernacles. Kind of ironic that they put branches down in front of Christ. Uh, They did it out of order order for their own selfish purposes. Three, another irony is uh, those who at the beginning of the week chanted Hosanna joyfully. We all know by the end of the week, we're chanting crucify him without blinking an eye. Irony, it's it's all through the the Passion Week and it begins when you look at the the Palm Sunday. What is a... this kind of irony designed to do in Matthew's pen? Well, uh, I would su- summarize the, the, the purpose behind the irony in Matthew's uh, work uh, this way. Irony is designed to spiritually educate and motivate unbelievers to turn to the Messiah because if you will remember, uh, Matthew is a book written to the Jews to convince them that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. So Matthew employs irony, which is all throughout the Old Testament, a rhetorical device they were used to, to awaken the spiritual sleeper. 
So if you are a person that does not have a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, the Messiah, uh, the true Savior, uh, the ironies that we will study uh, today are designed to uh, grab you by the shoulders and wake you up so you can turn to him. Uh, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the ironies that are present in, in Matthew 27 are devices that you can use to teach people about their need for the Savior. So with those things in mind, what I'd like to say is, there are so many ironies in uh, Matthew chapter 27. Uh, it's going to take us, uh, and don't laugh when I tell you this, but it's going to take us three years or three um, Palm Sundays to cover them all because I'm just doing you know, one message per Palm Sunday. So we will cover uh, one irony in this particular study, another irony next year, and then the year after that we'll cover irony uh, number three. Uh, so three powerful ironies. Um, so you'll have to stay tuned for the next two years. Uh, today we want to look at the, the first irony in the text, uh, Matthew chapter 27, 1 to 10. Here we will discover this premise, and it's an ironic premise. Here it is. They who judge unjustly, speaking of non-believers, will be judged justly. They who judge unjustly, the Messiah, will be judged justly by the Messiah. Completely ironic. Uh, everything about the arrest and trial of Jesus that you encounter in um, the end of Matthew 26 uh, and into Matthew 27, everything about Jesus' trial before the Sadducees and the Pharisees smacks of injustice. Um, the very people, uh, the politicians, the spiritual leaders, uh, these, these powerful men who should have known better, they, who should have lived for justice, live for injustice. Uh, and we encounter the reasons why they hated Christ so much as you read through the Gospels. Uh, they had a burning hatred toward him for daring to challenge their teachings and traditions according to Matthew 5. Uh, they, they didn't like him for that. Uh, they didn't like Jesus because he had the gall, uh, from what we read in the book of John and Matthew, uh, to cleanse their, their temple of the money changers two times, not once, but twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry, once at the end of his ministry. They never forgot that. Uh, they hated Christ uh, because he, according to their viewpoint, uh, allowed work on the Sabbath, whether it was healing a, a person of a disease or allowing his disciples to pluck heads of grain. Uh, they condemned Christ for breaking the Sabbath laws. Uh, they hated Christ for calling them of all people sinners. And he did this most clearly in Matthew 23, where he minces no words with them. Uh, they hated Christ because, according to John 8, 58, he equated himself with God. They attempted, as we know in that passage, to stone him, but he slipped away from them. See, there was a variety of reasons why they couldn't stand Christ. They were envious of the crowds who followed him, uh, and they wanted to terminate him at all costs because he was a, a, a challenge to their power uh, and to their, uh, their belief system. They would do anything to eradicate him. We read about his arrest in Matthew 27, verse 1. It says, Now when morning had come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and they led him away and they delivered him up to Pilate, the governor. Uh, the illegal trial that occurred that started in uh, Matthew chapter 26 and bleeds over into chapter 27, the illegal trial that they held in the middle of the night uh, is now airbrushed in chapter 27 to make it look uh, viable. 
they do not have as the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, they do not have the power to, to bring someone to a capital crime to an execution. This rests with Rome. So even though they're going to bring Christ on trumped up uh, charges uh, of blasphemy, etc., they, they have to couch it in such a way that the Romans will buy into it and execute Jesus. Interesting. These people who should have been for the law, all of a sudden, behind the scenes, they are going to twist and distort and defy the law, while in the public, they're going to make it look like they are staunch supporters of the law, such as how power-hungry people behave. We know that uh, from Christ's uh, trumped-up trial before the high priest Caiaphas in chapter 26, verses 57 and following, that they purposefully used false witnesses to accuse him. The, they intimated that he would dare attack the temple and destroy it and rebuild it in three days. That's uh, what happens in Matthew 26, verse 61. They, the judicial leaders, purposely used false witnesses. They had no intention on presenting the truth. They wanted to present, present untruths as truth so they could get Christ executed. You know, Jesus did say that he was going to tear the temple down, but nobody bothered to ask him, if you go back into the context, um, in John chapter 2, verse 19, nobody asked him what temple he spoke about. He wasn't speaking about the Herodian temple, but his temple. No one asked, which particular temple are you speaking about? But like good propagandists, they took what Jesus said, only presented part of it, uh, painted it in a different light to make him look uh, insane, like a lunatic, like a man who was anti-law. Um, frustrated that, that Christ uh, would not answer uh, the false charge that was rendered against him by Caiaphas, Caiaphas uh, explodes in anger in, uh, in chapter uh, 26, verse 62. It says, the high priest stood up and said to him, do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus, realizing that the charges were false, kept silent. And the high priest said unto him, I abjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. I mean, he's telling him, I, I've got to know. He didn't really want to know because he'd already been told on other occasions who Jesus was. And you will see what Jesus says to him. Here is a clear indication that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man. That's a code word for Jesus sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus just told him again, you said it yourself that I am the Messiah, God in the flesh. With that, verse 65 of chapter 26 says, the high priest tore his robes, show, saying, he, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. Uh, from their perspective, they had him at this point. Uh, because out of his own mouth, he said that he was God. Uh, and based on that, they believed that he warranted death for equating himself with God. Their blind hatred of Christ uh, wedded to their envy of his teaching, uh, followed by the fact that countless people were following them, him uh, did not uh, cause them to consider the true evidence against Christ, but to buy in false notions of Christ. Let's emphasize this irony. They who should have shown justice lived for injustice, and they did all of this before the one who is the epitome of justice, Jesus. On another day, uh, these spiritual leaders, these judicial leaders, uh, had an encounter with Jesus on the same temple mount. Uh, at that time, they frustratingly said to him, according to John chapter 10, verse 24, um, how long do you keep us in doubt? Doubt as to who he was. 
Uh, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Uh, Jesus had told them plainly. He had shown them plainly through his miracles, but they weren't willing to listen. In John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus answered and said unto them, I told you and you do not believe. He says, the works that I do in my father's name, these bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You know, it's hard to let go of a false presupposition. No amount of uh, evidence uh, mounted to show you the tenuous nature of your false presupposition can help you because you're not interested in changing your mind no matter what is said to you. This was the, the religious leaders of the day. They so hated what Christ stood for. They didn't care about the evidence. Jesus said, I've already shown you on other occasions who I am by the miraculous works that I do. The point being, if you don't believe the words Jesus is going to say to them, well, at least believe the works because only God could do the miracles that I have done. John chapter 10, verse 37. That is the, the argument of Christ. He says, if I do not the works of my father, don't believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Long before Caiaphas accused Christ of blasphemy or equating himself with God, Jesus had already told them on the same temple mount, well, I am God, and you've seen that I'm God by the definition of the works that I've done that only God could do. You see, Isaiah had prophesied 800 years before the birth of Christ uh, many things about the Messiah, kind of like his job description, like what should they be looking for when the Messiah came? Uh, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, well, when the Messiah comes, he will be called Emmanuel or God with us. He told them God's coming. In Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, he actually calls the Messiah the mighty God. So they had clear evidence that the Messiah was going to be God in the flesh. In chapter 32 of Isaiah, listen to what he would do when he would come. It says, then when the Messiah comes, the eyes of those who, will not, who, who see will not be blinded and the ears of those who hear will listen and the, and the mind of the hasty will discern truth and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. Translated, when the Messiah comes, he will take people who are blind and give them new eyes. He will take people that ha have speech issues and he will heal them. I mean, he will take someone who is lame and transform them. This is what he says in chapter 35. Notice, says, take courage, Isaiah says, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then when the Messiah comes, Isaiah says, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. They knew exactly what they needed to look for on the job description of the Messiah. Can he give blind people new eyes? Check. Can he take a lame person that hasn't been able to walk his entire life and give him new legs? Check. I mean, did Jesus do all the, yes, did Jesus did all of these things. That's why Jesus says, if you don't believe my words and my teaching, well, at least use your logical mind and consider the evidence because it was only God could have done the miracles that I did. You know, Jesus did many miracles that only God could do. In Matthew chapter 9, he healed two blind men. Mark chapter 7, uh, he healed a, a deaf and dumb man. Uh, in Luke chapter 7, he raised a widow's son back to life. Um, Luke 14, he healed a man with dropsy. In Luke 17, he healed 10 lepers. And in John chapter 5, verse 1, he healed a man who had been in, an invalid for 38 years. See, they, they all would have known about these people and about these stories, but their presuppositions were, well, you, you, you possibly can't be God because we don't want you to be God. 
And so we will try to eradicate you by any means possible when Jesus says, just consider the evidence. See, Jesus is saying, I, I can't be committing blasphemy because I am God. Caiaphas, uh, his uh, declaration of blasphemy dripped with injustice. He had no desire to follow the hard evidence and trace it to Jesus. Why? Because he loved sin more than he loved the, the, the evidence of the Savior. He, he loved power. He loved prestige. He loved perdition. He loved all the traditions of the Jews more than he loved the very Messiah standing in front of him. And he would do anything with his friends to, to hold on to their power. So they sought to get rid of him. They, they, the false judges, sought to get rid of the true judge. How ironic. And they did it by wrapping uh, justice uh, around the cancer of injustice. They did it by bringing false charges against him with false witnesses. Uh, they did it by bringing a bribe to a former uh, follower of Jesus, Judas. Uh, they did a variety of means that uh, true judges would never do. All because they, they hated Christ and did not want to follow him. Uh, the law was pretty clear when it came to bribes. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 27 verse 25 says this. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood and all of the people when they hear that shall say amen or let it be so. See they the teachers of the law knew the Torah what it said. Cursed is a person who takes a bribe. Well cursed is the person who gives a bribe. They had bribed Judas to betray Christ like unjust men. They played fast and loose with the law in order to get what they wanted. You know, Judas, Judas took the money, as we see in chapter 27, but uh, when he realized the ramification of what he had done, uh, the, 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 the moment of his, of his insurrection against Christ overpowered him. And we read in verse 3 of chapter 27 of Matthew, then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and to the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And here's where we see how unjust they are as, as political uh, judicial leaders. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and he departed and he went away and he hanged himself. You know, had they been true judges, not false judges, they would have listened to Judas and they would have... Uh, made a proper uh, decision about Jesus based upon uh, the evidence given by Judas. But if they had been true judges, they would have never given Judas the money in the first place to bribe him. But they were false judges. It says in verse 6, the chief priest uh, took the pieces of silver uh, that Judas had thrown and they said, it is not lawful for us to put them into the temple treasury since it's the price of blood. And they counseled together and, and with the money they bought a potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called uh, to this day a field of blood. What just happened here? Uh, they who are living in injustice behind the scenes want to project that they are all about justice. So they take the money and all of a sudden they want to follow the law, uh, which tells you not to use money that's been used in an evil way to the furtherance of God's uh, kingdom work. So they want to all of a sudden obey the law in front of the people. So they piously buy a field. That becomes the field that uh, Judas is buried in. Deuteronomy 23 verse 18 as one that part of the law they understood. It says in verse 18, you shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Translated, 
If you're bringing any kind of money into the house of God to give to God and it's tied to evil things, don't bother bringing it. It's an abomination to God. What had they done? They had done just that. They had taken bribe money that they had paid Judas and they had used that to go purchase something. And God says to them through the Torah, you are unjust judges. Why did they do that? Well, probably to appease their conscience, uh, to help them live with themselves, to rationalize what they were doing, but it didn't change what they did. And they did this long, uh, long before they took Christ to the cross. They had perpetuated the way to, to get rid of him. But they failed to understand as false judges that the one standing before them was the true judge. You know, Jesus had told them uh, many times before who he was. And in John chapter 5, verse 22, he's very clear uh, that he is not just the Messiah, but he's the judge of all mankind. He says in John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus speaking, says, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given, notice this, all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death unto life. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you that there's an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, that's Jesus, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him, Jesus, authority to do what? To execute judgment. Why? Because he's the Son of Man. He's the Messiah. In verse 28, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and they will come forth, those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus says, the day is coming when you have unjustly judged me will be judged by me. Imagine what Jesus' judgment will be like. Uh, will he take bribes? No. Uh, will he disregard the facts about a person's life? Did they follow God or disrespect God and walk away from God? Uh, no, he will not disregard the facts. Uh, Will he do things in secret behind the scenes as a judge? No. Everything that he does in judgment will be done for all the, the angels and people of all time to see. Um, Romans chapter 2 tells us he will not be a respecter of persons. He doesn't care about your IQ, uh, who you were uh, in this life, how many uh, degrees were after your name. That says that he is a respecter, no respecter of persons because he's a true judge. Um, he will abide by the law and he will not play fast and loose with it. Uh, and it says from Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 12 that he will bring all the hidden things that men have done out into the open on judgment day. Notice what Jesus says, the true judge. Therefore, he says in Luke 12 verse three, whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light and that which you have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Translated, Everyone in all of the cosmos of all time is going to know what your sin is because I know what that sin is and I will judge you accordingly based on the facts. See, that's the irony of the whole moment. The religious leaders thought they could hide their sin, present to the people that they were truly tracking with the Torah, the law, when behind the scenes they were playing fast and loose with God's law. And they did this all before Jesus, the true judge. How ironic. How about you? Let's make it practical. How about you? I mean, are you guilt, guilty of smugly, self-righteously misjudging Jesus? 
unjustly judging Jesus to drive him out of your life so you don't have to make a decision about him. Uh, you might uh, have reasons for judging Jesus in such a fashion. Uh, you have your arguments. Some are academic, some are personal, some might be emotional. Uh, some would argue in, in this way, uh, in their unjust judgment of Jesus. How could the Jesus of Christianity be the only Savior when there's so many people uh, that are well-meaning, nice, loving people in so many other faiths? H how, could, how could he be the only Savior? That's an incorrect judgment of who Christ is. Because Jesus said he is the Savior, not a Savior. Some would argue, uh, well, my commitment to my religious traditions have been handed down through our family line. Uh, and that traditional belief coupled with my belief in God, surely both of these things will save me on that day. No, that works don't save, Jesus saves. It's an inappropriate, uh, a tenuous view of who Jesus is. You know, some will say, well, that Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites and um, you know, why would I want to follow anybody that is highly hypocritical? Well, I would submit to you, you try to live the whole next week and don't commit a hypocritical statement. Uh, you will. And just because you might run into some hypocritical Christians doesn't mean they all are. Um, there are many that are not hypocritical. You know, a few bad apples, as we say, don't, you know, doesn't change uh, the taste of a good apple. And lastly, uh, religious belief, some would say, is just that. It's just belief. It's just faith-oriented. There's no facts. Why would I want to believe in Christianity that it has no basis in reason? Uh, John Lennox, a mathematician, world-class mathematician, a professor at Oxford, responding uh, to Richard Dawkins, uh, he had a debate with him. Uh, he wrote these words uh, as a thinking man, as a mathematician, as a Christian man. He wrote these words. He says, indeed, faith is a response to the evidence, not a rejoicing in the absence of evidence. The Christian apostle John, uh, John Lennox writes uh, in his biography of Jesus, these things are written that you might believe. That is, John Lennox says, he, John, understands that what he is writing is regarded as part of evidence on which faith is based. He goes on to add, the Apostle Paul says what many pioneers of modern science believed, namely, that nature itself is part of the evidence for the existence of God. Because the scriptures are clear, he says. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, well, they are clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that man, according to Paul in Romans 1, are without excuse. Lennox then concludes, it is no part of the biblical view that things should be believed where there is no evidence. Just as in science, faith and reason and evidence belong together. He says there's no contradiction between science and reason. He says a reasonable person looks at science and sees that this can lead me to God and make a proper appraisal of who Jesus is. Thinking people who made a right appraisal of Jesus. There's many of them. Uh, Melvin Calvin, Nobel Prize winner in biochemistry, uh, wrote this about his judgment of God. He says, as I try to discern the origin of that conviction, meaning the existence of God, he says, I seem to find it in a basic notion discovered two to 3,000 years ago and uh, enunciated first in the Western world by the ancient Hebrews, namely that the universe is governed by a single God and, not, and is not a product of the whims of many gods, each governing his own providence according to his own laws. This monotheistic view, the scientist says, seems to be the historical foundation to modern science. And indeed, he's right. See, these are just two men, Lennox and Calvin, very educated men, 
who said we can look at the facts and make it a proper appraisal about how we judge Jesus and, and embrace him as the Messiah and the Savior based upon what we analyze. But the world is full of people who turn against Christ for all the wrong reasons and judge him unjustly. Is that you? Palm Sunday is about the irony of the cross and understanding who Jesus is. Back in the 1800s, uh, there was a man named William uh, Kirkpatrick. Uh, his job during uh, their Methodist evangelistic revival meetings was to help with the worship. He had to select uh, the musicians to play for each of the revival services. He noticed after several services that one young man uh, kept leaving after he sang. And noticing that, he never stuck around for the preaching. Uh, he sat down and he wrote these words. I've wandered far away from God. Now I'm coming home. The paths of sin too long I've trod. Lord, I'm coming home. The refrain is simple. Coming home, coming home. Never more to roam. Open wide thine arms of love. Lord, I'm coming home. He wrote all these words um, and several more stanzas of them and he had them ready for the next service and he gave them to the young man. He said, I want you to sing those at the next service. That, uh, that evening, uh, that tune was played and those words were sung by that young man and he didn't leave the service that night. He stuck around and listened to the pastor. And at the end of the service, uh, that young man realized he was the one who needed to come home to Jesus and he gave his life to Christ. One of those stanzas says, I'm tired of sin and strain, Lord, now I'm coming home. I'll trust thy love, believe thy word, Lord, I'm coming home. Maybe this is the Palm Sunday you need to come home. And Christ's arms are waiting for you. And maybe you've never heard that song before. It's an old song uh, written a long time ago. Uh, I'll play it for you, one stanza, so you can just worship and understand just the, the power of the song, Lord, I'm coming home. <laughs> 